Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the latest in the POLIS series of lectures at the school. POLIS is our think tank on issues related to the media and society, and of course the subject matter of uh, this evening uh, could not be more central to the concerns that POLIS has had in the five years of its existence. And I'm particularly delighted to welcome Lee Bollinger here this evening um, for a kind of personal reason but also an institutional one. The personal reason is that Lee has been a president of the US University for 14 years and is still looking pretty good. Um, and as I am in the middle of my seventh year here, I think you know there is still life ahead of me, which is um, reassuring, because running um, a higher education institution these days normally beats people down after uh, uh, around this time. Um, and for the uh, institutional reason is that Columbia is a university with which we have a lot of links and a number of quite fruitful partnerships on the research side, where we exchange research students on the teaching side, where we've actually just introduced a teaching exchange scheme, but also on the, uh, among degree programs where we have uh, three uh, double degree programs, one in law and more recently two, one in international history, which is going rather well, and also an MPA, Master of Public Administration, where you can enter at the LSE and do your second year in Columbia or vice versa. And with Columbia and Sciences Po, we've set up a global public policy network, rather grandly named, but which is, in fact, pulling together scholars on public policy around the world. And we find that the link with Columbia is a particularly fruitful one for us, the, although Columbia, of course, a much broader institution in the areas of public policy, um, we have an awful lot in common. And Lee and I agreed a year or so ago that uh, we would mark this partnership with a couple of lectures, one that he would deliver here, um, celebrating his latest book, and I, I will deliver a reciprocal one a bit later on uh, this year when my American publishers have finally managed to get round to printing my uh, latest book. Uh, that's a bit of private grief, um, which uh, is my problem. But um, Lee, uh, in addition to being uh, president both of Michigan of, at uh, Ann Arbor uh, for six years and then for eight years at Columbia, has also remained probably America's foremost scholar of the First Amendment and has continued to lecture, teach, and write and research on issues related to press freedom. His latest book, Uninhibited, Robust, and Wide Open, uh, A Free Press for a New Century, has just been published, and he's going to talk to us about that this evening. So welcome to the school. Thanks. Thank you very much, <clears throat> Howard, and it's a, a real pleasure uh, to be here uh, at LSE. We, we talk about LSE, uh, London School of Economics, all the time uh, at Columbia and about the partnership. It's extremely important uh, to the School of International and Public Affairs. It's a, an example, I think, of a type of approach 
to a world of globalization. That is, it's a deeper network uh, than the usual student exchange, faculty exchange, by having uh, joint degrees, joint professors, and common research projects. Uh, it, it really is an example of what is possible uh, among uh, leading universities uh, around the world. So uh, I want to say at the beginning that our relationship uh, with Howard, with you, uh, with the institution uh, is extremely valuable and uh, I want to uh, applaud it. Um, so it's a little bit of uh, presidents inviting presidents to uh, give speeches about their books. Um, and I'll be delighted, uh, I am delighted to uh, reciprocate. And the problem that Howard addresses, which I understand to be a set of how to create a global financial uh, system, uh, just couldn't be uh, more timely. Uh, my subject is uh, freedom of the press. And what I would like to do is just give you um, an overview uh, of what it is that uh, I'm trying to think about and, and trying to um, uh, recommend uh, that other people, especially in the First Amendment community in the United States, uh, take up, seize, uh, and try to, um, uh, try to offer suggestions about how to develop a free press around the world. Um, there are three parts uh, to this uh, uh, synopsis. Uh, one is a kind of overview uh, of the last century uh, in the United States. Uh, a second is, is a preview of this century and where I think we are and where we seem to be going. And then a third is uh, some examples of how, if you believe in a free and independent press, uh, especially if you believe in the values uh, as they've been defined uh, in the United States, how would you go about trying to achieve that uh, on a global scale. Very complicated problem, uh, as I say at the end of this book. Uh, it's been a, a, a genuine and deep pleasure for me to take a field that I have thought about, written about, taught virtually every year of my uh, professional life, and to see it unfold from uh, something that uh, took 100 years to create in the United States and to begin to see it unfold on a, on a global stage. Now, what I'm going to say, I want to recognize, I want to acknowledge right at the outset, has a sort of US-centric uh, base to it. Uh, and um, I also uh, want to recognize acknowledge that it has a constitutional law uh, foundation, uh, perhaps more than anything else, although I want to talk about public policy as well. That is, I am a First Amendment scholar. Uh, freedom of speech and press, as defined by the First Amendment, has, has occupied uh, my uh, attentions uh, for many uh, years now. And what I want to do is use that as a base for thinking uh, about, uh, about global free press issues. I also have a background uh, uh, with the press. My father. Uh, ran a small town newspaper in a rural uh, area of the state of Oregon and also uh, worked at a, a sort of 
community newspaper in Santa Rosa, California. Many of members of my family also worked there, but the point is I grew up uh, working in this uh, little newspaper as a janitor uh, and developing films, and I, I um, have a sense of, of what a small town newspaper is like. Today, I sit on the board of the Washington Post Company, uh, which publishes, of course, the Washington Post, has TV stations, cable uh, company, and uh, also uh, Newsweek. Um, so I see it from that perspective. Uh, I have spent many years uh, involved in issues, and I have a sense of the uh, press and how it works, and, and um, so I bring all that to bear uh, on thinking about these issues. But I start, I think, really from the sense of the First Amendment. Okay, um, a preview, I mean an overview of the last century. So my basic argument is uh, we're going to have to learn how to deal with a world uh, that uh, needs to address issues of censorship and needs to develop the capacity to have the kind of information and ideas and reporting uh, that a world population uh, needs desperately in order to grapple with the issues and the potential that we face. So how do we do that? I want to start looking back over the last century in the United States. What most people don't understand uh, is that the First Amendment, freedom of speech and press, are creations largely of the 20th century. I'm talking now again in the United States. When I teach a First Amendment course, uh, which I do every fall to undergraduates now, I've done that since uh, being president, I teach it in the same way I would as a law school class. And the first cases that we take up are from 1919. There's no Supreme Court case interpreting free speech or free press, First Amendment, in the United States until 1919. Obviously, the First Amendment was part of the Constitution uh, since uh, shortly after the Constitution was, uh, uh, was established in the 18th century. But the Bill of Rights with the First Amendment as the, the first and foremost, uh, we didn't know what it meant in terms of Supreme Court jurisprudence until 1919. And as I have written at various times, it's not, it was not an auspicious beginning. So what happened? Well, one of the cases that the court took up in 1919 involved a person who gave a speech in the state of Ohio, and what he did was to praise people who resisted the draft in World War I. That's all he did, and he was prosecuted under the Espionage Act of 1917 for interfering with uh, the uh, creation of, uh, of a military. He was convicted and uh, went up to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court took the case and the Supreme Court in a decision by the very famous generally associated with free speech uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. And the court in a unanimous decision upheld the conviction of that person uh, and he went to jail. Who was that person? That person was Eugene Debs, 
leader of the Socialist Party in the United States, a candidate for president of the United States, and while he was in prison in the election of, for president in 1920, received over a million votes. So just imagine what it means to have a society take someone who is a presidential candidate, make a speech praising people uh, who have uh, violated the law, admittedly, but just praising them, uh, and convicting them under uh, a statute of Congress and uh, the Supreme Court upholding it. So it did not begin uh, uh, well. And very shortly, uh, however, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Louis Brandeis, began to argue in a few cases in the 1920s that free speech and free press uh, had to be expanded. And they wrote these magnificent opinions uh, that became the basis then in later decades for the development of the First Amendment as we know it today. It wasn't a straight line. Uh, by the 1930s, that pro-free speech, free press uh, position had sort of won the day. But in the 1950s, the Supreme Court uh, fell again uh, in cases involving uh, the conviction of people uh, who were the leaders of the Communist Party in the United States. Uh, and in a notorious case called Dennis uh, versus United States, uh, those convictions were upheld. It wasn't then until the 1960s that the case law that we today think of as establishing the great free press, free speech traditions of the United States, it wasn't until the 1960s that that became really the basis uh, of uh, our jurisprudence in the United States. And it's a complicated set of, of uh, decisions, very complicated. Uh, from my point of view, I'm grateful that it's complicated because it means I can have a career. There's something for me to be an expert in, uh, and I can teach courses about it. Very, very complicated. But for our purposes today, what I would like to say, and what I say in the book, is that in the United States, partly under the leadership of the First Amendment and the great decisions of the United States Supreme Court, we essentially created in the United States what I call a national public forum. As the society moved from a very locally based and state based uh, society to a national one, as the economy became national, as the problems that the society faced became national. And importantly, as the methods of communication, the new technologies of communication, made national discussion possible. And I'm thinking specifically of the developments of, of radio and television and then cable and the opportunities that that gave for a national uh, forum. As all of that happened, the First Amendment was interpreted in a way to uh, help reinforce, help create that national, and protect that national public forum. 
And the great case that <coughs> think of as, as really central to that development is New York Times versus Sullivan in 1964. And Sullivan involved an advertisement that appeared in the New York Times. Uh, it was an advertisement that had been taken out by some civil rights leaders trying to raise money for the civil rights movement. And this advertisement said that civil rights demonstrators and Martin Luther King, in their efforts to achieve civil rights in through uh, protests and, and, um, and the like in Alabama, these civil rights protesters and Martin Luther King had been mistreated in a variety of ways by local police and officials in the state of Alabama. That's what the advertisement run in the New York Times claimed. And a local official from Montgomery, Alabama, brought under the state libel laws, defamation laws, a civil action against the New York Times trying to uh, get a a, uh, a judgment that this had been false, the statements about mistreatment of Martin Luther King and protesters had been false, was false, and that uh, he should be awarded damages. And the co Alabama courts uh, entered judgment in, in that way, and the Supreme Court took the case. And on a technical basis, very important for libel law, the Supreme Court said, from here on out, if public officials are going to sue citizens for false statements of fact about that injure their reputations, they will not be able to recover damages unless they can show actual malice. That is, that the statements were made uh, knowingly uh, false or with reckless disregard of the falsity. In other words, public officials basically were not going to be able to sue citizens and the press for misstatements of fact that were hurt their reputation. That's important, and it matters to the press to have that. In this country, uh, there is a very different uh, approach to this. I'm going to put that aside uh, for now. The point is that the Supreme Court saw and was partly responsible for, or largely responsible for, a national issue of great importance, that is ending segregation in the United States. No longer could a state have a law that officially discriminated against a group of people because of their race. That's the famous Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954. That became a national issue. This was speech about that national issue. And the Supreme Court held that we are not going to allow local jurisdictions through defamation laws or other laws to interfere with a national discussion about this, uh, about these uh, uh, problems or issues. Uh, it created, it reinforced, it helped protect a national public forum at the expense of local uh, laws that might have been good in an earlier time and not mattered 
but now they really mattered as the society moved from a state, local-based society to a national one. That was then also uh, accompanied by a, a magnificent theory about freedom of the press and free speech, but especially freedom of the press, I think, in the United States. And that theory was uh, and became that the press has a very important public trust role to play in the society. It's not just a corporation like any other corporation. It's not just a business like any other business. The press has a role in the country of informing citizens, bringing them news, it's like universities. Uh, and this was a uh, notion of freedom of speech and press that became the sense of, of, of what a national public forum should include. Well, um, the recognition that censorship somewhere in the society had to be stopped because it could chill speech everywhere in the society. That was an important step in the development of freedom uh, of the press. Now the court also, over a series of uh, a couple of decades, allowed the society, the US, the government, to develop public policies that would also further that goal of having a robust Uninhibited, uninhibited, robust, and wide open marketplace of ideas, which was the language from Sullivan. What were the other public policies? Well, they were in the area of broadcast regulation, where there was extensive regulation of radio and television, fairness that included the fairness doctrine, the equal time provision, requirement of local news, requirement that you do cover issues, and these laws having to do with broadcast regulation were upheld in the Supreme Court so that by the end of the 1960s, there was, as I have called it, a dual system of the press in the United States. Print media could not be regulated to further the goal of having an informed uh, citizenry, but broadcast media could be, and that was upheld as constitutional. So there was a complicated dual system all in service of creating a national public forum that was uh, filled with uh, ideas and information. Extraordinary protection for speech was one of the foundations, uh, and, um, uh, uh, and this uh, is still the law to this day. Now the journalistic uh, institutions, media, also developed during this period of time to be uh, uh, deeper in the coverage of public issues and to serve this public trust. They did it significantly because they had an economic monopoly. One of the phenomenon of the, one of the phenomena of the 20th century is the increasing concentration of ownership of the media. So by the 1950s and 60s, almost every community, every city had only one daily newspaper and maybe and three network uh, television stations and then there was also some public television which I'll come back to. The point is that the economic 
concentration allowed monopoly profits to be developed. And by the 1970s, early 80s, a lot of the press in the United States were using, uh, was using that, those profits to deepen their coverage by hiring experts in law who would cover uh, legal matters, health and science, and economics and business reporting. Uh, and the press also developed an ethos over the 20th century of being independent, balanced uh, uh, in its coverage and fulfilling a, a press, uh, a public responsibility. So all these forces came together. Supreme Court interpretation, uh, defining the, the, the mission of freedom of the press, protecting it, allowing public regulation and the press joining in this and great decisions like Pentagon Papers where the Supreme Court held that the government could not enjoin the Washington Post and the New York Times from publishing uh, classified documents uh, known as the Pentagon Papers uh, without showing really uh, imminent and uh, very significant harm to the United States and other decisions that uh, were part of this group. Okay. That's what was created in the course of the 20th century. Uh, and it's a, we turn into this century now, uh, and what do we find? Well, we find the very things that happened in the United States on a national scale now happening on a global scale. We talk about globalization all the time. It's on our lips at every moment, it seems. Globalization is many things, but it is significantly a matter of economic activity around the world. It is significantly an embrace of theories of capitalism and markets, free markets, as a way to organize economic activity. The collapse of the uh, communist uh, uh, societies as a form of economic and political organization uh, sent countries that heretofore had resisted and rejected the free markets as a way to organize uh, the societies into that system. And especially in the past five to 10 years, that transformation has been rapid uh, and momentous. And there are all kinds of statistics that we can use to support that. The S&P 500 uh, companies, 40% of their earnings come from foreign uh, sources. But there are many, many ways to say that. So globalization, what, is, what happened on a national scale, in a sense, in the United States in the last century is now happening on a global scale. The other thing that's occurring that's also reinforcing uh, this interdependency and integration across the world uh, in the economic sector, reinforcing it and having then its own consequences is the development of new technologies of communication and especially internet, uh, but also satellites. This makes it possible to communicate on a global scale in a way that we have not had before. And accompanied by satellites, this is an amazing transformation 
just like in the last century, the development of national media was so profound. So you have the interconnection, the interdependency, the integration of societies around the world, the incredible growth that's happening uh, with that, incredible changes, and you have new technologies of communication that are developing. And that means two things. It means that censorship anywhere becomes censorship everywhere. Just like in the United States, censorship in Alabama could chill the New York Times as it was developing a national presence. And that was unacceptable in a national public forum. Now, a country that decides to censor speech somewhere and to prosecute people ha can have a chilling effect, not only in that country, but everywhere. And so we are facing a globally integrated world, the realization of a global public forum, with the consequence that there is uh, radiating effects of censorship on the discussion. And the other thing that's so important is that we need information. We need to know what's going on in the world. We need to understand this world better than we do. And so there's both the problem now of the contraction or the limitation of information through censorship and the need for more than we have. And the third thing I would mention is that the irony of the moment is that just as this is happening, that we're having more integration of the world, more interdependency, and the capacity to have more discussion globally, the very new technology is undermining the financial stability of the traditional media and causing a contraction, at least in the United States, of foreign coverage, international coverage, global coverage by our media. So just as we need more and have the capacity to have more, we're getting less. Now, there are all kinds of, uh, of ways of, of establishing that. Uh, the shutting of foreign bureaus by major media in the United States has happened at an alarming uh, rate. The coverage of major activities, such as uh, uh, the war in Afghanistan, uh, the, the lack of a presence, insufficient presence, on a regular basis of the press there to cover what is happening is uh, of very, very significant concern. So um, I could go on about that, but the it is a fact that traditional media uh, are contracting their coverage of, uh, of international affairs. So the point is that we need more. The world is changing. Uh, we would have a need to try to address censorship and, and the getting more information. We'd have that need even without this contraction. But the fact is the contraction makes it uh, of news about the globe makes it even more uh, imperative that we focus on. The third part of the uh, argument is with all that, 
uh, how do we set out to create a global public forum that will deal and address the problems of censorship, lack of access by the press, differences about theories, about understanding the press. How do we address that on a global basis? And then also, how do we develop the capacity to have quality news reporting uh, about the globe so it's not only a matter of just ending censorship, it's also a matter of developing the capacity to get the information uh, that we that we need so desperately to deal with the problems that are now global, uh, whether it's climate change or financial regulation or uh, interaction of cultures or understanding of, of, uh, of different ways of life, whatever it is, how do we get the information uh, we really need? Well, uh, it's not an easy problem. And, and in the book, I tried to outline a number of things that, uh, that we can do uh, to begin to uh, approach in this century on a global basis what I argue we approached in uh, the United States in the last century. Um, I'll just give you uh, an example or two of how uh, this change in reality uh, also leads to a change in the way we shape policy and, and shape law. But I think first we need to have a change in our consciousness. We need to understand that this is no longer a matter of just fighting for human rights around the world. Uh, there's been a tendency in the United States to see that we have developed a wonderful system of freedom of the press. Um, and the rest of the world uh, were prepared to fight for human rights so that they have the same rights that we have. That's no longer the way to look at this. Human rights, very, very important, uh, obviously. But it's now a practical problem uh, of getting the information uh, that we need around the world and access to information. It's not just fighting for human rights elsewhere. So I argue that the foreign press is our press now because a lot of what we will get will come from uh, the uh, coverage that foreign uh, news media develop. We need to think about this in a, in a different way. We also uh, need to understand that uh, this took a long time in the United States. It's not something that just happened. That was my point about beginning in 1919 and our own sending, uh, our own decision to send a presidential candidate uh, to jail for a speech. This didn't happen in the United States overnight. And we need to understand that this is something we, got to, we have to approach on a long-term basis. We have to argue for it. We have to recognize that uh, people have to be persuaded about this. We need to engage with them. We may change our opinions. Uh, we can't just name and shame uh, and think that we've done our work. Uh, we need to think about this in a serious, practical, comprehensive, uh, long-term fashion. Um, we also uh, have to realize that there are certain, I call the myths 
Uh, I realize they are arguable, uh, but I think of them as um, uh, myths. And for example, uh, there is an easy assumption that the free markets will automatically, inevitably, inexorably end censorship. Uh, you know, all we have to do is wait, allow free markets to work, uh, and countries will stop censoring because people will demand that they have the inform information. I just, I don't see that as happening. I don't think it is happening. Uh, and I think we, we need to uh, confront that. There's another myth, I think, that the Internet will by itself end censorship. That the proliferation of, of voices on the Internet and the access that people have will by its own uh, operation uh, stop censorship from occurring. I don't see that happening, but I, I realize uh, there are people who hold that view. Um, I also should say that I don't think that just having citizen journalists is enough to get the information we need. I think there are a number of people argue that it doesn't matter if the New York Times and the Washington Post and, uh, and the great networks and magazines and so on, if they were simply to go out of business and not be replaced by, uh, say, comparable news organizations. I think that's a mistaken view. Uh, I really do care uh, that institutions, I don't, not making the point or the case for any one news organization to survive, but I think we need institutions who are devoted with a professional culture of journalism to be covering the world. That is essential, just like it's essential that the London School of Economics exist as an institution that Columbia University exists as an institution, and that it's not sufficient to have all of the things that you're taught and our students are taught, our faculty do research on and your faculty, to have all these things simply on the internet someplace. So if you want to think about economics, you no longer have to come to LSE and, and uh, pay the incredibly exorbitant fees that they charge you here. Um, you can simply go online and find that. And if you're interested in thinking about uh, Aristotle's ethics, you go to a, you'll find a website someplace. And the, that idea seems to me to miss the point that institutions are critically important in our world in universities and in journalism. Um, and I also believe in a professional culture of journalism um, as an independent, objective effort to try to understand uh, the world. So how does this reshape, this sort of perspective <clears throat> reshape how uh, I and I recommend uh, others begin to think about how to grapple with this problem, these problems? Well, I argue for a lot of different things. I think the Supreme Court should begin to address and speak to this reality. I think there are various kinds of cases that might be brought before the Supreme Court, uh, especially those involving a right of access to war zones and uh, a process by which if reporters are arrested, uh, the, the uh, military authorities have to uh, deal with the charges and 
in uh, according to a certain process. And I, I really give a number of examples of uh, critiques uh, of the uh, United States government in the uh, relationship to journalism during the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. Uh, so there are a number of things that I, I argue for in that sense. But let me give what I think is a dramatic example that begins to combine the various uh, facets of what I said earlier. Uh, we need more coverage. In fact, I would argue that the best way to deal with censorship around the world is to try to invest more in trying to have institutions devoted to covering the world. The more information people get, the more they will want and to fight against censorship and resist censorship. I think it's the, the, in some ways the best way to fight. Fighting censorship around the world is going to be difficult. I argue that there are various things like international trade law and foreign direct investment law that can be uh, invoked. It's, it's a, and of course there's international law and uh, regional organizations, all that's important. Uh, but I do think that perhaps the strongest effort we should make to deal with censorship is to increase the capacity of journalistic institutions to cover the world. Well, take public broadcasting, radio and, and TV, but let's take especially radio. In the United States, we have um, a, a very substantial, journalistically substantial, uh, public broadcasting system uh, for television and national public radio, uh, obviously, for radio. And they have coverage of international affairs. Uh, PBS uh, relies significantly on uh, ITN uh, here in, uh, in Britain. Uh, and NPR has some uh, significant amount of work trying to understand the world, reporting on world events. But it also relies heavily on the BBC. Uh, and so I make the observation in the book that it is somewhat odd that people who listen to NBR, among whom I count myself uh, as member, a strong member of the group, get a lot of our world coverage courtesy of British citizens um, who are uh, supporting uh, BBC World Service. Uh, and I realize BBC World is a commercial uh, sort of venture, but we're using both of those uh, as primary sources of international news. That's our public funding uh, broadcasting in the United States. Then the United States has a global, an international uh, governmental supported broadcasting system, which includes Radio for Europe, Voice of America, Al Hura, Radio Marti. Uh, these are efforts developed after the Second World War continuing on into recent uh, years to try to provide organizations that would speak to the world and do so in part as propaganda for the United States and in part as journalistic, serious journalistic enterprises. Uh, and many people uh, count themselves fortunate and for good reason to have had access to Radio Free Europe and this is not uh, to castigate uh, all 
elements of, of this particular uh, system. But it is designed not to inform citizens in the United States, but government efforts to try to engage in uh, propaganda outreach, put in its most negative sense, to the world. There is a law that forbids those organizations from broadcasting back into the United States on the theory that uh, if we're going to set up government-funded propaganda organs, the U.S. government should not allow itself, we should not permit the government to try to influence uh, citizens in the United States in, in that way. Well, that's an anachronism. Uh, that no longer makes sense in a global public forum. It makes sense in a national public forum where the rest of the world is out there, and of course we want to cover it, but uh, the point is not to have a global public forum. That's no longer a viable, uh, good, intelligent system for dealing with modern global realities and working on a global public forum. And there are various ways to deal with that. You could set uh, Radio Free Europe journalistically free, uh, or you could build up NPR and PBS and say, develop out into the world in different languages and, and uh, to different audiences and develop a global presence. You have done that in this country, uh, or not all of you are from this country, but Britain has done this uh, with BBC World Service and and BBC uh, World, and the United States is going to have to, to face this, I think, and to take seriously uh, our, both our needs and our responsibilities to grapple with what, as I'm saying, is a, is a public forum. When you say in the United States, we should have more public funding of journalism, and especially public funding to develop a global uh, journalistic footprint, uh, there is very strong resistance uh, from many quarters, including from journalism, uh, about that. Uh, in Britain, public funding is much more accepted. In the United States, it's, uh, it's less so. Uh, and I think that is a reasonable uh, argument to have. But it goes back to how the Supreme Court could interpret the First Amendment in a new global public forum era. And in particular, there are cases, which we could draw on, that would hold that if the government does support journalism, it is constitutionally forbidden from trying to control the editorial and journalistic functions. Uh, so that there is a separation of public funding and editorial uh, uh, actions and decisions and that would be enshrined uh, in First Amendment decisions, which would then allow this to uh, develop uh, with uh, high journalistic standards that we already see uh, in NPR and PBS. Point is that as you begin to think about uh, a move from a national public forum to a global public forum, you begin to see uh, public policy and constitutional law uh, in a somewhat different way, maybe a very different way. Uh, and that, I think, is the, uh, the point we're at. We're at the beginning of a century. Uh, 
we are facing a new reality. And it's a reality that calls upon us to develop all kinds of new institutions, mechanisms, principles, ways of coping with this new world, which is bringing enormous benefits to us. Lifting people out of poverty, making it possible to uh, interact in ways that we want. It's a, it's a really, on the whole, magnificent development. But we need to think about the financial services regulation that's going to make this possible on a global scale. And we need to think about the principle of freedom of the press and the reality of it. And so that's why I argue that the project of the last century, uh, from my point of view, was creating a free press for a national public forum. And now the project of this century is to do it on a global public forum. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, uh, Lee. I was uh, fascinated that you find so much of your own news from the BBC World Service because um, as the BBC World Service's budget becomes more constrained, uh, they find it difficult to afford to bring into Bush House, which is on the Old Witch, uh, anybody other than LSE academics because we can walk there. Free. Um, so uh, basically you're getting your news from the LSE largely, which uh, uh, may, uh, may explain a lot. Um, now, we've got time for some uh, questions. Let me uh, throw it open immediately uh, to the audience, and if you can say who you are, and that, wait for a microphone, that would be great. Yes, right down that. Sorry, I wasn't pointing to you, actually. But anyway, go, go, you go for it, then you're second, right? Okay. I'm, I'm really sorry, I thought you were. That's right. <laughs> um, thank you, Professor Bollinger. My name is David Goldberg. Um, a year or two after uh, New York Times and Sullivan, President Johnson extremely reluctantly signed the Freedom of Information Act into law. And then one of the first things that Pre President Obama did was to um, uh, promulgate an executive order uh, extending or promoting or supporting enhanced transparency within the U.S. administration. Is any part of your global public policy forum um, sort of focusing on how to institutionalize this value of transparency, yeah. which I would suggest is to the 21st century yeah. what green was to the 20th century. Yeah. So it, it's a, a wonderful question and a wonderful area to, to focus on, and I, I tried to do this to some extent uh, in the book in a very, um, uh, a, a very short way. It's quite complicated again. The Supreme Court in the 1970s, by a very narrow five to four majority, held that the First Amendment would not really protect the news gathering process. And in particular, the press could not use the First Amendment as a sword to try to force the government to release information. So Freedom of Information Act and so on, and all statutory, legislative, and, uh, and executive. Uh, and President Obama has taken the step of, of making things more open. I'm fully in favor of that. That um, was also complemented by the decision I mentioned in, in the course of my comments in Pentagon Papers so that 
if you uh, know about Pentagon Papers, it's it established a, a norm that a reporter can get classified information and even get it um, from someone who has gotten it illegally. And the reporter may know it was gotten illegally. And that classified information can then be published free of what are called prior restraints. And so the, the interpretation of these decisions uh, was made by a very famous constitutional law scholar in the 1970s in a book. Uh, his name was Alex Bickle, and um, and he said all this adds up to the First Amendment has created a war between the press and the government, and the terms of engagement. And the terms are in of engagement are under the First Amendment. The press, I mean, the government has no responsibility to turn over they, anything to the press. They can keep it completely closed. They can classify anything they want, and there's no First Amendment right. The press, on the other hand, if they can get their hands on it, no matter, uh, you know, it's got to be really, really, really damaging to the society. Otherwise, they can publish it, even if they got it from someone who took it illegally. And that's the basis of the... And so that's been the norm uh, for, uh, for the past 30, 40 years. My view is it's time to change that. And I argue in the book that it's time for the Supreme Court to begin to find a right of news gathering and a right of access. And a good place to start, I argue, would be in context of war zones, uh, where US behavior and, and policy and so on is played out in ways that, that matter enormously. Uh, and the press should be able not just to be embedded there at the, at the wish of the government but be able to have be there as a, as a First Amendment right. The point is that uh, I believe that in this global public forum, in this era of globalization, in this new century, which we all want to work out well, uh, access and transparency is of the highest order, uh, just as you say, and it needs to be reflected in changes in the course of First Amendment law as well as public policy. Thank you. Uh, yes. Hi, President Bollinger. I'm actually a 2009 Barnard graduate. So Wonderful. <laughs> very nice to see a familiar face here in London. Thank you. Um, and sitting next to an NYU graduate. So uh -huh. anyway, welcome. Uh, I had a question. You talked a lot about the government and what the public sector can do to change the discourse. Yeah. And what I was wondering was whether uh, I consider myself to be one of those Americans who would vehemently resist <laughs> that Route because I think it's a slippery slope um, uh, of government funding. Exactly, and, yeah, government right. funding and, and changing the government itself being in charge of changing the discourse and changing things yeah. like PBS and Voice of America. So what I because I think they serve a purpose, and uh, that the that free press serves a very different purpose. Um, and I think that it's a slippery slope to go down. So what I would ask you is, have you and do you address in your book, uh, which I which I obviously will read, uh, but do you address in your argument? what for the private sector, what, how you could encourage a change in discourse in this sort of global public forum way amongst private sector actors. And to that question also, would you support the type of sort of uh, social responsibility, one could call it, uh, actions that, for example, Google has taken against China recently? Yeah. Um, I think that the, um, I, I think the following. 
And I, I know this is a, uh, what I'm going to say is a, is a matter of uh, legitimate, reasonable debate and, and, and significant controversy, and I think it, it's appropriately such. When I look at the last century and I see uh, the great press journalistic uh, enterprise that uh, was developed in the United States, and, and I'm not saying, I mean, there were lots of other great journalism around the world, but I'm focused on the United States coming from the First Amendment side. When I see how that evolved and the understanding of the press as not an arm of the government, to many societies, that's the way they view the press, as a means of implementing government policy. It's not that in the United States. And also, it's not just a private business that produces something like uh, companies manufacture cars. It has a public institutional, a structural role to play in the government, in the system, in the society. My view is that a free market will never fully support that. It just cannot be expected to bear the full weight of providing the kind of journalism that we need in a democratic society or in an open society. And the only reason it did that in the United States, as I argued, in the last century was because it had actually a monopolistic position in most cases. But now that it no longer has that, we're left with this extremely vulnerable situation where it's not clear how we're going to provide ourselves with the information we need and the news. And, and I believe there is a role for the government to increase its funding in order to help provide that. Now, let's, let me also be clear, we have never had an entirely free market system of journalism. Uh, it hasn't, as I just argued, in, with respect to monopoly position. It's also the case we've had public funding of broadcasting, uh, of NPR and PBS. And I think by, certainly my view, and I think the general consensus would be that's very high quality journalism. Furthermore, broadcasting has been regulated, as I pointed out, and um, for public good purposes to try to increase the amount of information and discussion of issues, and that was upheld by the Supreme Court. We've had public regulation, and I know that's a complicated matter. I've written about that, but we've never had, we've never relied exclusively on the free market to provide us with the kind of information uh, we need, nor has Britain. Now, I would also say, nor have universities. Uh, that is, scientific funding in the United States, especially for health sciences, biomedical sciences, is mostly funded through government uh, grants. Uh, it is protected. Universities care about our freedom, uh, our autonomy from the government, as much as the press cares about its autonomy from the government. And we have worked successfully as universities with that public funding scheme, hundreds of millions of dollars every year to, to many individual uh, universities, including Columbia. 
through a peer review system and the like. That's why a number of people, including a report that recently came out of our journalism school on how to help the press maintain its coverage of local matters, I'm focused on the global, there's also concern about the local uh, reporting. One of the things they argue is for a national endowment for journalism. And remember, we also have national endowments for the humanities and national endowments for the arts. There is public funding in activities in the society uh, that we regard as extremely vulnerable to government uh, uh, control, and we, we uh, yet live with that for reason that we think, on balance, we're better off. So I think this is um, an important area to uh, develop. On the private side, uh, I think there are a number of things that one can think about. One is the role of universities. Universities are very successful organizations, uh, very difficult in this environment uh, financially, but universities have been spectacularly uh, important to the development of well-being as we think of it. Uh, in our uh, countries, our developed countries, uh, over the past century. Uh, and that's something that I think we uh, need to build on and uh, we need to realize that a lot of what we're going to need to know about the world, and we need to know a lot more than we know now. Our knowledge of China is amazingly and disturbingly slim. And yet there is a wide consensus that how China develops and evolves is of enormous magnitude, enormous importance, enormous moment to all of us. We need to understand China better than we do and say the same thing about Africa, say the same thing about every other country. We need more expertise, we need more general knowledge and therefore we need to invest more as universities in understanding the world. And we can do that also in the area of, of reporting. We can become reporters. The partnership that we have with LSE uh, and Sciences Po is an example of a response to this need to understand the world better. Uh, and the Global Public Policy Network is, is another example. So I, I would uh, count universities as key players in this. Thank you. There was someone, yeah, woman down uh, here, first row, green. <coughs> Hi. Um, first off, you mentioned what you think the limitations are of informal reporting via the internet, like Twitter and YouTube. Yeah. What role do you think those outlets will play in the future? And also, sorry to take you slightly off the topic, but I promised a Columbia College grad I'd ask this. How do you feel about the nickname Presbo? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry you keep getting American questions. I'm, I, I pick on um, women who look well-dressed because yeah. I, I assume they're not Americans then. But and that's a... <laughs> well, I'm failing. Then, so. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm... I think it's I think it's very important uh, that we develop a sense at the university level 
one of engagement with world issues. And we can do that through all kinds of, uh, of means. Uh, one of the things uh, we're doing at Columbia is to set up research centers in various places around the world to try to make it possible for our students and our faculty to be engaged in serious research uh, about issues of, uh, that are important to those regions and then connect them to think about how they uh, play out on a, on a global scale. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a tentative move into uh, the world to try to build on the expertise that we have, but also help people who are not experts to become familiar with the world, and to do so by being part of, of local institutional uh, cultures, both uh, governmental and university and others, and, and to try to use that as a base for contributing to the world, but also expanding uh, uh, our understanding uh, of the world. So I would say that we um, are, are facing a situation in which uh, we have to realize that the, uh, the expertise we bring, whether it's journalistic or university-wide, is, is insufficient. You know, after the Second World War, there was a recognition that we did not understand the world at that moment very well. And language uh, was funded, and regional centers were funded, and uh, I'm talking about the U.S. government, and a variety of actions were taken to support science and support um, ways that would help us uh, develop in a, in a certain Cold War kind of uh, environment and a more re greater responsibility to engage with the world. Now we need to adjust those policies and our actions to try to reflect this new, much more integrated <laughs> world. So uh, that's where I am, and I'm not going to comment on the name. <laughs> Yeah, let me take the man in the blue shirt up over there, yeah. Hi, you mentioned uh, the removal of uh, requirements in the US uh, broadcast media for a balance and uh, uh, quality of time and everything. And I wonder if uh, you considered that that has led to a more polarized um, political environment uh, than we have in the UK, for example, with, with uh, the continuing uh, requirements for balance and maybe there is a potential for a uh, too robust and too wide open uh, uh, media. Well this is a, this is a very important uh, set of issues and it's uh, frequently put in terms of uh, there is more and more uh, viewpoint journalism or viewpoint um, um, sort of organs of communication, and uh, clearly Fox News is, is uh, a prime example that people cite of a, of a move towards a kind of partisan uh, way of um, setting up uh, uh, institutions like a, a network. Uh, and there is a concern uh, that the internet and the interaction with other forms of communication uh, 
uh, cable and, and so on will accentuate that and that the way in which people res will respond is to find uh, the viewpoints they agree with, listen and watch only those, and then become reinforced in those and become more intolerant and, and, uh, and develop a variety of, of characteristics that should trouble us. Uh, so that's a thesis. Um, my own view is that I think we ought to focus more on trying to build the traditional journalistic uh, professional culture uh, and make sure that that can thrive rather than trying to focus on the more viewpoint, the development of viewpoint uh, journalism or just viewpoint expressions and be concerned about limiting those. In other words, I think the answer is to try to make sure we have a, a culture of professional and institutions of professional journalism, uh, which I think is something that, even though it's very hard to define, exists and is important to preserve. And how you do that, whether as the journalism school uh, report indicated, one method, let's have a private endowment, I mean a public endowment for uh, for journalism, which people would compete, institutions would compete, or we build up more public funding uh, for uh, NPR and PBS, or uh, we, we find other ways to do that. We uh, maybe universities, I have argued, if possible, would actually move gradually into the news reporting area, just as we have with hospitals. Uh, that is, many universities run hospitals. They provide medical care. And it's not inconceivable, although right now it seems highly improbable, that great universities would run a major news uh, uh, outlet or institution. Uh, so I I'm not ready to try to buy the New York Times for Columbia. Um, but as a matter of the way universities are structured, that is not an inconceivable idea. Uh, because as I said, universities also run hospitals where people are, students are tra trained and faculty do research. Um, so I, I, my point is to try to build find ways in society and the world to build the, the uh, quality journalism with professional standards and not to be so concerned about the, uh, the Fox News uh, phenomenon. Thank you. Yeah, take a woman on the front row. Yep. Can you? Thanks. Hi, thank you very much. Um, I was wondering what your sort of thoughts were, I know that you mentioned censorship a lot, but I was thinking about self-censorship and some of the things that the media don't actually say, partly as a, a consequence of vertical in integration. I'm sort of thinking Fox not necessarily reporting on, on things in China because of media deals and partnerships there. I was wondering if we can get your thoughts on that. Well, I, I think this has, um, this has always been a significant problem, and uh, I would I would say that it makes a point that I also wanted to, was trying to make earlier. That is, 
there is no system that you can imagine or invent or create for a free press as we think about it that does not have significant risks of bad incentives to not develop and and uh, and report the news and information about the world. A commercial free market system has incentives that, as you say, can lead uh, press organizations not to report certain things because they don't want to offend their advertisers or because they don't want to offend um, uh, a country that uh, where they're trying to, to make money. Uh, so it's never a choice between pure journalistic autonomy and, and uh, no bad incentives and ones that do have bad incentives. So I think in general, my view has been that mixed systems, some public funding, some semi-private, semi-public uh, news organizations, and then very private organizations, and then nonprofits, and so on. That mixed system is the best uh, that we can design uh, because each one has its own bad incentives, uh, negative incentives for quality journalism, and can serve as a kind of check on the other. Uh, so I think you, know, you, you point to something that is important uh, and I think representative of a, of a bigger sort of uh, way of thinking uh, about this. Let me say about the, the Google and China, of course, we, we don't know uh, what actually happened. We just know that uh, Google says that there was um, uh, an effort uh, by someone and, and perhaps uh, uh, the Chinese government that we don't know uh, to break into uh, their system and to surreptitiously gather information uh, both about um, uh, that would deny free speech and perhaps give competitive advantage and, and it's uh, uh, made a very uh, public uh, statement about this. I would say that Secretary Clinton's speech of a few weeks ago in which she addressed this was a milestone, was a landmark uh, in our thinking and in our public policy position very much along the lines that I'm talking about. That is, if you look at her remarks, she said essentially what I've said. We are now in a situation because of the technologies of communication, and talking now again about the internet, uh, primarily, we are now in a situation where censorship in one country can result in censorship elsewhere. That is a new uh, major phenomenon. And I can give you many examples of where people are uh, and institutions um, are under prosecution or indictment or conviction or civil fines someplace in the world for something that they said based out of the United States or based out of uh, Britain or elsewhere. So that w she identified this as a new situation. And she said, secondly, 
that we need to think about this now as a matter of domestic and foreign policy together, not just we're interested in human rights in China, which is, again is extremely important, but it's not just human rights any longer. Uh, and thirdly, she said, and I thought wisely, this has to be thought about in an overall context of our relations with China, uh, so that it's uh, we need to approach this with the historical sense that this takes time to develop. It took time in the United States. It's going to take time elsewhere. We need to think comprehensively and long-term about how to achieve it. And uh, simply denouncing something uh, is, is not going to be enough. Uh, in, in most cases to address what is a much bigger problem we have in this century. We're running up against a time constraint. I'm going to take one more, that uh, guy there with the, yeah. <clears throat> you mentioned the case of Google in China. One of the reports I read from the Chinese media is that they've characterized Clinton's response as information imperialism. Now, do you think it's possible that they're concerned that destabilization of places such as where the Uyghurs are or the Tibetans are in fomenting possible revolution is a possible legitimate ground for censorship. I'm sorry. Say the, <clears throat> say the last part of what you just asked. Is preventing, they, said, is preventing, they said it was information imperialism. Okay, and what's the, what's the last part? Is preventing secession of, say, the Uyghurs or the Tibetans a legitimate ground for censorship, in your opinion? You know, uh, my answer is no. But I, I think I want to be clear about something. Um, I believe in the principle of freedom of the press as it's been uh, established and recognized in the United States. I believe in that. Um, I believe that in the world we are creating, or that is being created, given the policies that we have around the world, that a free press is desperately needed for that world. And I believe that the principle of open and independent and objective uh, reporting about the world is what we should have. I also believe we have to engage with the world and hear different points of view about this and uh, make the case and do the research and figure out the, the policies and the, the venues in which we're going to discuss and resolve these things all of that is a process that is now underway and there are institutions and principles, Article 19 and, and the Organization of American States are ways in which we can begin to build on what it is that we need. So it's not a matter of uh, we've got it absolutely right, uh, let's impose it on the world. It is we have a serious problem and a serious potential here. Uh, if you believe that a free press is important to it, just like if you believe in universities, 
having uh, academic uh, freedom and and um, and uh, institutional autonomy. If you believe in that, then let's try to to deal with the world on that basis and, and hope that uh, we succeed or uh, offer our uh, you know, be open to persuasion um, about this. So I think we have to be careful that the claim that can be made is all you're trying to do is impose this, your values, on the world. Um, really ignores the central issue, which is, let's talk about it. Um, you know, we have a problem. Uh, we are setting up a world that is increasingly integrated, and we want it to be. And we have, we are being changed in the process. And we have enormously important issues of people dying of poverty and, and living in poverty, extreme poverty, and people uh, suffering from curable diseases. And, and meanwhile, we also have climate change and, and we have financial uh, regulation that's needed and, and we can just identify dozens of very, very important issues that we're facing. We have to have information about that. We have to have reporting. We have to have more understanding about it. And a free press, in my view, is extremely important to it. So let's set to work on it. Um, uh, that's not uh, imperialism that's uh, we need to engage on this seriously and I think that's what Secretary Clinton said and it was a very very important moment by a major uh, political and public figure as this evening has proceeded my heart has sunk further and further uh, because the bar for my own contribution at Columbia has been raised higher and higher uh, because we've had a terrifically interesting lecture and uh, some very good uh, questions, not least from the Americans. Uh, a belated apology uh, to them. Um, and I should finally um, point out that all of this in greater detail is in uh, Uninhibited, Robust and Wide Open, A Free Press for a New Century, which is published by Oxford University Press. Uh, presidents, vice-chancellors, directors aren't allowed to market their own books, but I could, we can market each other's, which uh, <laughs> arranges for a, a good reciprocity principle. Uh, thank you so much Thanks. for your Thanks. contribution for coming over to do this. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for coming. <laughs>